0: This Star News Media Podcast is presented by North Chase Family Dentistry. Open evenings, Saturdays, and they probably take your insurance. Visit them on the web at northchasefamilydentistry.com. And by Tidewater Heating and Air Conditioning, servicing all major brands with highly trained technicians who are the best the industry has to offer, serving Wilmington and surrounding communities for more than 40 years. Learn more at tidewaterac.com. demon rum, devil's brew, and hell drink. It's hard to believe it today, but that's how many Americans came to view alcohol as the country entered the 20th century. It was seen as a scourge on the population, a sickness that destroyed good men, and a sin in which far too many people indulged. These sentiments which only gained more and more supporters in the half-century after the Civil War, led to one of the most legendary and crime-ridden periods in American history. Prohibition. The nearly two-decade period when the nation outlawed the purchase and manufacture of alcoholic beverages was a time when mild-mannered citizens considered breaking the law to get a drink. And family businesses were turned into illegal operations. The law, which was passed in 1919, was an affront to manufacturers whose livelihood depended on the popularity of alcohol. Effectively putting them out of business, whether it worked or not, was the first shot in yet another struggle on the American home front. But this time, they didn't engage on the battlefield or with armies, Instead, the war on alcohol was fought from the pulpit in churches, in the pages of newspapers, and through organized campaigning in the streets. Moonshiners were forced to continue their work with a new degree of discretion in the shadows and on rural farms. But make no mistake, this was a war. A war for a right that manufacturers and consumers believed they were entitled to, and one the temperance movement believed would cost the country its soul. North Carolina was not only a big proponent for prohibition, it was also one of the first states to embrace it, ushering in more than two decades of misbehaving, barrel-breaking, and hooch-making. Oh yeah, and even murder. ¶¶ This is Cape Fear Unearthed, the podcast exploring the persisting legends, historical oddities, and mysterious figures of southeastern North Carolina. I'm your host, Hunter Ingram, and I'm a reporter for the Star News here in Wilmington. This week is the final episode of our third season, and to mark the occasion, I'm pulling out one of the most fascinating chapters in our local history book. The Age of Prohibition. Although prohibition was a national issue in the 1920s, it actually arrived in North Carolina a full decade earlier and took a particularly strong aim at the Cape Fear region, which had been one of the most active in the liquor business since before the Civil War. Prohibition, which was the law of the land, didn't immediately curb the consumption manufacturing, or purchase of alcohol, which has been ingrained in our national identity since before we could even call ourselves a free country. That was no more apparent than in the Cape Fear region, whose status as an alcohol-friendly port made for a formidable allegiance to the devil's brew, one worth fighting for. As always... I'll share with you our story as it has been passed down through history and told through legend. And then I'll bring in someone from the community with knowledge of our tale to continue the discussion and explore whether or not history can be trusted. And be sure to stick around after the interview to learn more about what's ahead for the podcast in the next few months. So grab a pint, a glass or a shot of your favorite drink and settle in for our season finale, as we chase down the moonshiners, bootleggers, and rum runners of Prohibition in the Cape Fear. Americans have always loved themselves a stiff drink. As far back as the Mayflower which is said to have been stocked with low-percentage beer, alcohol has had a steady presence throughout this nation's history. It's been used to celebrate and commiserate, drown one's sorrows, or lift their spirits. Some of our founding fathers would greet the day with a mug of hard cider, or send it to sleep with a dram of whiskey. Starting in his administration, President George Washington saw that soldiers were given four ounces of whiskey as part of their daily rations. Even in the charter that established the province of Carolina in 1663, the landowners known as the Lord's proprietors specifically mentioned the production of wine as a key function of the new colony. And it would be exported to England duty-free for seven years. As a means of enticing English residents into buying from across the pond. In last call, "The Rise and Fall of Prohibition," author Daniel Okrent cites English traveler Frederick Marriott's 1839 observation of America's proclivity for alcohol." quote: "They drink because it is hot. They drink because it is cold. If successful in elections, they drink and rejoice. If not, they drink and swear. They begin to drink early in the morning. They leave off late at night. They commence it early in life, and they continue it until they soon drop into the grave. Quote. In North Carolina, alcohol was even a means of commerce early on, as rum and whiskey were used to trade with Native American tribes for resources like furs. Unfortunately, it also crept through local tribes like a disease, causing a documented increase in drunkenness, aggression, and even death. It became such a significant problem that a Catawba tribe leader is believed to have submitted the first petition for prohibition to the North Carolina government in 1756. His request for colonists to cut off their supply of alcohol to local tribes was considered, but hardly enforced. As the country matured, so too did its drinking habits. People, mostly men, would drink throughout the day, incorporating alcoholic beverages into their lifestyle as we drink water and soda with meals today. By 1830, the average American over 15 years of age drank the equivalent of 88 bottles or 7 gallons of liquor a year. That's nearly three times what the average American drinks today. Just as alcohol was a mainstay in American society, so too would be the counter-movement to subdue it once and for all. Religious groups claimed alcohol was a temptation made by the devil himself as a means of luring men away from the light of God and their responsibilities as husbands and fathers through drunkenness and unseemly behavior. The most common refrain from temperance groups was that it jeopardized a man's ability to provide for his family. If he was spending all of his money on booze, were his kids at home starving? In some cases, yes, alcohol was an intoxicating indulgence for some people, and by design, it was one society all but limited to men for a time. In the 1700s, sailors and slaves in North Carolina were not allowed to buy alcohol without the consent of their masters. In the 1850s, freed African Americans were banned from buying it altogether, And even when saloons became a popular business in the 1800s, it wasn't ladylike for a woman to be seen in such an establishment unless she was working, limiting her access to alcoholic beverages. According to Daniel J. Whitener's book, Prohibition in North Carolina, there were 397 saloons in the state in 1855, 46 of which were in New Hanover County. While that might not seem like a lot today, you have to remember that Wilmington was only then approaching 10,000 residents. Like brothels, the number of saloons was propelled by the city's status as a bustling port, meaning men were coming in and out looking for short-term entertainment. And drinking was certainly one option. Even the wine business was booming in North Carolina, which for a time around 1840 was said to have been the country's biggest supplier of wine. This easy access to alcohol and steady manufacturing profile was a thorn in the side of the local temperance movement, which flared up throughout the country with local segments in most communities. But North Carolina's temperance members were particularly vocal and proactive, presenting petitions for prohibition to the General Assembly as early as the 1850s. But as the century wound down, more people found themselves drawn to the temperance movement, which used everything from religion to propaganda to scare tactics, invoking the image of sad children to paint a dark picture of alcohol's unsavory effects. As with most political efforts, the movement also tried to recruit supporters through editorials in local newspapers. Entire publications sprung from the movement with the sole purpose of pushing the temperance agenda, including Wilmington's own short-lived democratic free press. At the forefront of the movement was the formidable Anti-Saloon League, the nation's largest temperance group which advocated for a dry nation through the use of political pressure. But North Carolina wouldn't start taking real action on the matter until 1903, with the passage of the Watts Act, which banned the manufacture and sale of liquor outside of incorporated areas. In other words, the homegrown manufacturers in rural counties like Brunswick and the unincorporated parts of New Hanover County were being targeted. If you were caught selling it, you were slapped with a $200 fine and potentially six months in jail for repeated offenses. If you were caught making it, it would be a felony on your second arrest. But even under these early laws, there were loopholes. For instance, a pharmacist could continue to prescribe liquor to a patient in need because this was still the age when throwing one back could supposedly cure any number of ailments. But that wasn't enough for the growing contingent of lawmakers in support of Prohibition. Two years later, the Ward Act was passed in 1905, extending the ban to all incorporated towns with less than 1,000 residents instantly making 68 of the state's then 98 counties dry. The purpose of allowing alcohol in bigger cities rested on the notion that there would be more police around to oversee places of sale and manufacture so as not to let it get out of hand. But with unlawful county distilleries still operating and the temperance movement only gaining steam, North Carolina moved for statewide prohibition in May 1908, becoming the first state to pass such a law, voted on by the people. Though it should be noted that like the consumption of alcohol, voting at this time was almost exclusively done by white men. Women's suffrage was still a decade away, and efforts had been underway since the end of the Civil War to suppress the African-American vote. In that election, New Hanover County voted against Prohibition by less than 200 votes. To illustrate just how popular temperance groups had become, a Prohibition vote taken in 1881 saw New Hanover County vote against Prohibition by more than a 1,000 votes. On January 1, 1909, North Carolina became an almost exclusively dry state. Because the law was targeted at saloons and hard liquor, exceptions were made for beer and wine. Because the law was targeted at saloons and hard liquor, exceptions were made and leniency was given to beer and wine. When the clock struck midnight on the new year, 55 saloons, 4 breweries, and at least one legal distillery were put out of business in and around Wilmington. Now, as you might expect, and as was the case with federal prohibition, this didn't stop people from indulging in their spiritous liquors. Most people bought in bulk before the end of the year because home consumption wasn't illegal if you already owned it before the law went into effect. But once the law was in effect, distilleries still operated in secret in rural areas, and consumers just found loopholes to get their fix. One such flaw in the foundation of the law was the ability to buy alcohol from a wet state and have it mailed to North Carolina. That was done away with in 1913. World War I all but put a stop to manufacturing alcohol as the country turned its attention to the war effort. But as soon as the front lines calmed down, the temperance movement was back in action, operating at full force. And in 1919, they got what they wanted. The 18th Amendment, commonly known as the Volstead Act, had been passed by Congress and went into effect on January 17th 1920, officially banning the sell, purchase, and manufacturing of alcohol nationwide. North Carolina was the 28th state to ratify it. By the time Prohibition became national law, 33 states had already self-imposed dry mandates. But the national Prohibition took an even stricter stance on the ban designating anything with more than one-half of 1% as an alcoholic beverage. Suddenly, the leniency that North Carolina's own state law had been giving to beer and wine was gone. For the first time, all alcohol was illegal. And yet, people still found a way. Wine was still authorized for use in church services. And in most cases, if you managed to get illegal alcohol into your house, police weren't going to bust down your door. They had bigger things to worry about than you enjoying alcohol in the comfort and safety of your own home. Speakeasies, even those based out of people's homes, sprung up in the wake of both the state and national laws. But people were still willing to publicly test the boundaries of Prohibition. According to Whitner's book, Prohibition in North Carolina, defenders would talk until they were blue in the face about how Prohibition was lowering public drunkenness arrest. But in Wilmington, they were actually on the rise. In 1916, there were 119 arrests. By 1922, there were 317 Police cracked down on those being belligerent in public because they were jeopardizing what was already a delicate balance for everyone else. Putting your inebriation on display for everyone to see in the streets was just reckless. According to local photographer and historian Dr. Robert M. Fales, who grew up in the height of Prohibition, there were three ways to get alcohol during this time. First, you would, as Fells put it in his book, Memories Yesteryear, acquaint yourself with a good bootlegger who could get his hands on white lightning, as moonshine was called. Second was more of a do-it-yourself option, learning the trade of moonshining so you could make it at home. The ingredients were still legal, so you just had to know how to use them without drawing attention to yourself. Lastly, and perhaps most delicately, you could strike up a relationship with a generous pharmacist who would write you a prescription for alcohol, which was still legal for medicinal purposes. Being that southeastern North Carolina sits on the coast, the water also played a factor in the movement of alcohol. Rum runners would use the water to navigate loopholes in the law, mainly using the matter of jurisdiction to their advantage. You see, Prohibition only went as far as the country's jurisdiction, which at the time only extended three miles off the coast. So rum runners would operate three miles off the coast to move their supply before bringing it to shore. One story said a Canadian ship carrying hundreds of cases of whiskey was captured off Wilmington in the early 1920s the cargo was ordered to be kept under lock and key in the Customs House on Water Street, which is now the Alton Linen Federal Courthouse. After the captain and crew were sentenced, the whiskey was taken out to the street and publicly busted to pieces so the prized beverage could wash into the gutters and into the river. Keeping the moonshining business alive in the Cape Fear Was certainly no easy task. Now, as an important point of clarification, a moonshiner was the person who made the illegal alcohol, while a bootlegger was the person charged with transporting and selling it. The thick wooded areas of the region's more rural areas provided ample cover for moonshiners but unlike big cities with plenty of alleys, buildings, and side streets to slink into if the authorities caught wind of their movements, bootleggers in Wilmington and Brunswick County were limited in their transportative options. The region only had so many roads, and most were bumpy, brutal routes that made transporting the precious cargo a tricky business. This was especially problematic in Brunswick County, where some roads were impassable at times, and the long march into Wilmington and New Hanover County only upped the stakes. This was a tense operation, so much so that when bootleggers crossed paths with the police, it wasn't unheard of for gunfire to be exchanged. It was this kind of face-off that's at the center of the region's most notorious story from the era of Prohibition. It involves Wilmington Prohibition Officer Leon George and U.S. Deputy Marshal Samuel Lilly, who were brutally murdered in Brunswick County on July 29, 1924, on their way back from breaking up an illegal whiskey still. The Wilmington Morning Star's report the following day went into gory detail about the gruesome scene found on what was described as a lonely road. Quote, Officer George was shot dead on the front seat of Marshal Lilly's Ford, his face and chest riddled with bullets. While the deputy marshal's body lay on the ground to the rear of the car, his head resting in a pool of his own blood. End quote. George's dog, Baby, was also found, as the paper put it, stiff in death on the back seat. The Cape Fear region was stunned. After a manhunt, four people, including father and son Moonshiners William and Elmer Stewart, were arrested for the murders. The Stewarts were found guilty and executed on the same day in 1925. Today, they're buried in Bellevue Cemetery in Wilmington, under a shared tombstone that reads, At Rest. We're going to talk further about the George and Lily murders with our guest, because the story shook the local region from the rhythm of prohibition, which at this point had become custom for the state. This was the way of life for the duration of prohibition people testing the limits of what they could get away with, all in the name of alcohol. Clearly, prohibition which was meant to curb that toxic allure of alcohol and protect citizens, was not having the desired effect. So in 1933, the national law was amended to allow for beer of up to 3.2% alcohol content. But by the end of the year, the anti-alcohol movement had lost its buzz. On December 5, 1933, The 21st Amendment repealing Prohibition was passed, but even that didn't bring an end to America's dry spell. But even that didn't bring an end to America's dry period. If you'll recall, most states passed their own Prohibition laws before the country followed suit, meaning the 21st Amendment only reverted authority back to the states when it came to the issue of alcohol. So North Carolina remained dry until 1935, when numerous counties voted to open alcohol beverage control stores, bringing to an end nearly three decades of prohibition in the state. Today, we call those establishments ABC stores. New Hanover County, which had been resistant to accept prohibition in 1909, was one of the first counties to overwhelmingly vote ABC stores through. By 1937, North Carolina was no longer a dry state, save for Graham County, which remains the state's only fully dry county to this day. Prohibition was, as it's been called, a noble experiment that spoke volumes about the country's dependence on alcohol. Driven by religious and political motives, temperance groups saw Prohibition as an end-all, be-all to a problem they clearly didn't understand the full extent of. In fact, some people argue that they may have done more harm than good. The simple act of taking a drink in the age of Prohibition chipped away at the average person's own adherence to being a law-abiding citizen. Many people believe prohibition actually gave way to a higher tolerance for illegal activity because more people were defying authority. While indulging in a drink was hardly a crime on par with murder, it allowed people to toe the line between right and wrong. There's something dangerous and even sexy about the age of American history that played out in backwoods distilleries and smoky speakeasies. But it was also a tense period that existed on the brink of lawlessness. Thankfully, we pulled ourselves back from the edge. But as we've shown, this country and the Cape Fear region did not come out of prohibition unscathed. Joining me now to talk further about prohibition in the Cape Fear is a returning guest, Jan Davidson, who is the historian for the Cape Fear Museum. Thank you so much for being here, Jan.
1: Oh, it's great to be back.
0: Now, you are back because you were on our Topsy episode, which was at the beginning of our second season, And that actually ties into this week's story, uh, which we'll get to a little later. But um, it's actually perfect because you were the first person who got me really excited about the idea of doing an episode about Prohibition. So this is kind of full circle for us.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, it's great. I'm really glad that you followed up on on my big hint in that episode
0: that you should do something about it. Yes, no, I I definitely took the hint. Um, And this is honestly one of the most fascinating episodes that I've done um, because It's an active piece of history for more than just a certain amount of people. There were a lot of people indulging in alcohol during Prohibition. And you see a lot of accounts in newspapers, the Wilmington Morning Star that I went through, and all of these things of um, it just being an active period of people kind of, you know, towing the line between right and wrong and breaking the law. And so it's kind of fascinating just to see um, the different ways in which people tested the limits of Prohibition during this time. But I want to start out, before we even get to how Topsy is related or anything, I want to start out with North Carolina being one of the first states to pass Prohibition. You know, I told our listeners a little bit of how it got there, but I wanted to talk even more about why, you know, what was happening in North Carolina that made it so quick to get on board for Prohibition or, or made it wanted to get ahead of the curve, kind of.
1: I think that's a great question. Um- Definitely one of the things that happens, which is an underlying part of the story, is that African-American men are disfranchised in 1900. And that kind of clears the way for those who are in favor of prohibition to stop worrying about splitting the white vote. Um, And, you know, white supremacy is a legacy of our history, and it was very alive and well um, at the turn of the century and at the time that prohibition was passed in in North Carolina. So that's part of what's happening. There's also is this sort of acknowledgement. um, There's a weird coalition that happens between women who have so few rights that if they marry somebody who's a drunkard, they're really stuck with the consequences, They don't have the rights to their own income. So if your, your husband can take your money. So it's not like you can even leave. Divorce is pretty hard. So there are all these things. So there's a group of women that the Women's Christian Temperance Union are advocating for saving the family by controlling alcohol. There's a piece of it in the country that's about an anti-immigrant feeling with um, new Catholic immigrants who are, have a tradition of drinking, um, the Irish, the Italians, wine, whiskey, those are seen as other. And so that helps to play into the idea that if we want to have a good, solid, white, Anglo-Saxon Christian nation, we need to start looking at how we control alcohol.
0: Well, and women' suffrage was still a decade off, and so they couldn't vote. So right. this was kind of their way of having their voices heard when it came to you know, the moderation of alcohol, or in in some cases, the complete ban of alcohol.
1: Yeah. And I mean, you know, we know that alcohol in large quantities is not good for you. Yeah. So and I think that people are starting to understand a little bit of that. They may not understand the whole uh, science and health that we do today. It's a
0: lesson that everyone learns in their own time.
1: Yes. But I think that so there's this certain combination of forces that happen. And, you know, drunkenness is an issue and um, people leaving their families is an issue. So it's a real problem um, that you need to figure out how to moderate. And, you know, some of the early places to do Prohibition are places um, like the South that has a more solid um, evangelical Christian base to it, and that kind of plays into it as well.
0: Yeah. Now, leading up to and even during Prohibition, despite what the purpose of Prohibition was, What kind of alcohol production was going on here in North Carolina or even in the Cape Fear? Mm -hmm. I I imagine there was whiskey, um, but wine also had a pretty big presence.
1: Yeah, so it's really interesting that wine kind of has this weird... um, liminal place in the history because it's actually not banned in the 1908 law for North Carolina um, because of the religious traditions of people drinking wine. So we have the Bear Wine Company here that makes wine out of scuppernog grapes and is a big business and they open a new facility in 1912. um, And it's not maybe not the front page of the paper, but definitely you know printed in the paper. Here's our new facility, so you can still make um, legal alcohol. You can also make alcohol out of fruit, yeah. but and. What I've looked at, and maybe you've seen different things, but in my sort of read of the papers, there's not really any whiskey being produced in the city per se.
0: There's a lot of Virginia advertisements that I saw.
1: Well, you can also buy alcohol through the mail. That's true. But um, I forgot about so, that, yes. And um, you can also get it on prescription. Yes. So there are these, there's always these loopholes which allow it to flourish. But then there's a definite sense that there is um, a lot of alcohol production in the more rural areas of New Hanover County at the time, Penry County, definitely Brunswick County. So I think we talked we've talked about sources before, and one of the challenges with doing a looking at something like prohibition is how do you figure out what's happening when it's an illegal activity exactly. making this alcohol? It's meant to illegal. be secret, so yes. if it's on
0: the front page of the paper. You're doing something wrong.
1: Yes, but so we know in, a, in from a couple of ways. We know because we see people getting arrested. We know because we see accounts of um, drunks in the streets, or, or there are drunken arrests for drinking, um, and we know because of people's oral histories later. So there's a guy called Buster Humphreys who was on, talks about the Whackamore River and basically talks about people building crow's nests in the trees because you could see for miles and huge brick stills. Out in the in the on the water, and you know you've got water to move the alcohol around with. So there was definitely a lot of production of whiskey um, in the in the surrounding area.
0: I mean, these were massive productions. It sounds like. I mean, if, if nothing else, I mean, maybe primitive in the sense that you know they're out in the middle of nowhere, and these right. are probably families that are doing this, but they're still pretty impressive to kind of build. In the middle of Brunswick County, or in these rural areas,
1: yeah, I mean they're making they're making moonshine all over the place, and of course we also are right by the coast, as we know. Mm-hmm. And another way that alcohol comes in um, is it's bottled whiskey that comes in on ships that. Um, that so you can the the limits like 3 miles mm-hmm. out. So in New York and places after national prohibition is passed there's like rum row where you could go out and basically drink um in the ocean. I haven't seen anything that suggests that we had a rum row, yeah. but you've definitely see um there's a famous ship called the Messenger of Peace in 1922 that gets caught with a th- more than a thousand cases of whiskey on it. Um, and they claim they're not stopping here, but uh, it seems pretty clear that they were. So we also, so we have the moonshine, we have, and then we have actual, you know, pr- you know legally produced alcohol that it's illegal to sell here.
0: Yeah. I saw at least one account of them going three miles off the coast to kind of, um, coordinate, you know, transfer of of alcohol or something and then bring it back to us. So uh, I think people were definitely using that. Um, it also sounds like that rum row was more of just a party boat. Um, that you might yeah. see today. I mean, you just go out and float for a little while and get drunk and then come back yeah, to Yeah, international
1: waters and you're all good. Exactly. And then when you come back, you can it's don like a, your hat of
0: respectability. And, it's like a cruise, I right. guess.
1: Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe um, they feel like that to them.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, even in that sense, there's something, and I mentioned this in our story and to you even before, but there's something undeniably sexy and romantic about this area because you have a lot of of preservation in film and television. Uh, you know, people are kind of breaking the laws. But it went against what this state was trying to do, which was to hold on to this type of um, moderation, this type of control over the area. And so I just kind of find that to be a fascinating uh, piece of this, that there's a lot of people who were um, towing that line and kind of taking – advantage of it but then you also have a lot of these people who were really fighting to keep prohibition you know enforced and we held on to it for so long afterwards
1: yeah so i mean our laws were passed i mean i think historians see north carolina is interesting because it was passed by a referendum mm-hmm. so new hanover county actually did not vote for prohibition in that referendum. Nope. Um, but the state as a whole did. So it's one of the first vote. I mean, it's people decided, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, people limited to white men, but the people. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, was, that shows that there definitely was a sentiment towards the control and restriction of alcohol. And yet at the same time, it's one of the most broken laws. And so... I think one of the interesting things for looking at it through a historical lens is, is, you know, what effect does it have when millions of people break the law all the time on how they fit into society and how they feel about government? Um, and this is an era, the progressive era, is one where the increased regulation of all sorts of aspects of life is, is growing. And there's this sense that we need to control the population in new ways to, in part, mitigate the worst elements of capitalism. Sometimes it's labor laws, sometimes it's antitrust laws, um, but also to make sure that we maintain our social order. And so there are these really interesting tensions. And prohibition is a sort of perfect example of how those tensions kind of crash into one another and have intended and unintended consequences.
0: Absolutely. Well, I mean, it's so easy to just take a drink and then you're you're kind of breaking the law. Yes. And it's, you know, some people find that to be more of a gateway drug into something a little more extreme, but you know, a lot of people were indulging, I guess you could say
1: yeah, and there's all the kinds of stuff that's going on about um new forms of entertainment, like the movies, there's new dance clubs, there's new roles for women. And so one of the things that the era of prohibition ironically does is make you know cocktails and drinking more um more common for women. And we know that has some really negative effects if you're drinking when you're pregnant now. Yeah. But, I mean, it's kind of changed that culture um, and made a big difference in kind of how social life and society have kind of worked.
0: You know, one thing that is so intimately tied to prohibition is uh, moonshine. Mm-hmm. But moonshine doesn't really need prohibition to kind of flourish. I mean, it's still done today.
1: Right. So I think the interesting thing is, is that we think of prohibition as, if you're thinking national, you know, the passing of the amendment to the to, through the repeal. So 1920 through 33. If you add North Carolina, it's 1909 through later. But there's been conflict about alcohol and moonshine, if it means, you know, un- alcohol you don't pay taxes on since George Washington's time. I mean, Mm -hmm. the whiskey rebellion Mm -hmm. is about not wanting to pay tax on whiskey to the state um, because you want to make money. And so we've been um, there. There is this tension and there has been moonshine pretty much through. It's basically if you made alcohol in your house and then sold it and didn't pay tax on it, you're you're a. You're a moonshiner
0: yeah uh, you know it's it's funny that a couple years ago i had uh there was a moonshine company that was launching in north carolina and they sent us promotional moonshine basically and it was in that characteristic kind of fruit jar that mm-hmm. half you know half court i think and um it's interesting how that image and that idea of prohibition is commodified now i mean it's it's something of a selling point now mm-hmm. but at that time it was a pretty tense time and you know i think that actually transitions us really well into prohibition officers, because Mm -hmm. obviously, um, and I've told our listeners about the the story of um, Leon George and Sam Lilly, but what would have been the duties of a prohibition officer in that time?
1: So, because the prohibition law says you can sell alcohol in certain places in North Carolina, um, dispensaries at the drugstore if you've got a prescription, one of the things that prohibition officers had to do was actually check the selling alcohol medicinally was being performed properly. So they are bureaucrats on that front. Um, But if you start reading the newspapers and looking at um, even just following Leon George's career, um, there are lots of, they're trying to find people. So they're trying to track down stills, arrest people. They're trying to deal with speakeasies. Um, You see Leon George chasing down people in cars which are supposed to have whiskey in them. and they went out in the countryside and destroyed stills as well. So well, they're he was doing pretty these,
0: active, right? Yes, Just yeah. Even the years before him, I mean, and I'll say that um, Leon George was the man that we talked about in our Topsy episode. He was supposedly one of the heroes that saved Topsy the elephant when she escaped from the circus in 1922. Mm-hmm. Um, but he had this whole other life. I mean, he was mentioned several times in newspaper articles because he was a leading force of prohibition enforcement here in the area.
1: Yes. So he seems to have been, I don't know if there was more than one local prohibition officer you would think there might be, um, but maybe he just, maybe that was part of how people got to drink, was you only had one. Mm. It's a whole different story. You had
0: to kind of, you know, you had to defy Leon George specifically. Yes, but
1: he definitely, I mean, he was a, has been a police officer in town since 1898. He, he was, um, he had done all kinds of stuff. A lot of what he's done since the 1910s is dealing with um, moonshiners. And so he was already active. When you look at him, he's, he... Obviously got horribly murdered, which you've talked about. But even before then, he got shot at. He got all kinds of stuff just in the course of his duty. So he seems like he was either a magnet for violence or that the job was really difficult. Yeah. But yeah, he, he's a really interesting guy because you kind of get this sense of, of him almost being, it's almost being like the Wild West or the, yeah. the, I, the tropes about the Wild West. And that they're out there kind of with their guns and looking for moonshine and and, and chasing, down, um, chasing down vehicles, trying to find known moonshiners.
0: Yeah, it's something you see out of a movie. Yes, it uh, it
1: almost does feel like one of those like gangster Chicago movies, exactly. but in Wilmington.
0: But in Wilmington, and you know, it's even more like the Wild West because what happened to him happened, as the newspaper described it on. A lonely, desolate road. I mean, it's out in the middle of nowhere.
1: Yes, the loneliest road in Brunswick County, I think one story put it, which I don't know how you decide yeah, that. I don't
0: know how you, I imagine there were a lot of contenders at the
1: Yes, time. I would think so. But yes, no, it's um, definitely you're driving around um, in all kinds of areas. Uh, I think the stories are amazing that one, it was that they got shot so so much um, and in such close range and it sounds like it was a horrific crime but also that all these people went out there to take a look at the site in the aftermath so there's this kind of rubbernecking that's going on as well and how um, today's standards of evidence don't really seem to have applied that much to this case and yet they did use some of the things that we think of as kind of CSI forensics to kind of figure out who did it by comparing bullet casings and that kind of stuff.
0: What do we know about the actual crime, though? I mean, why were they out there? Um, I mean, did they exchange gunfire or was it more of an ambush?
1: So it's my understanding that they were out there looking for a still. And and if the newspaper reports, which are extremely graphic, are accurate, then they were completely ambushed. Neither of them, they, they were heavily armed and neither of them drew their guns.
0: And even the dog died.
1: And even the dog died,
0: which is a very sad point of this. And and I somehow feel more for the dog, but um,
1: yeah, isn't that awful? I yeah, kind of do too, because yeah. like the the way that they describe baby the Airedale basically, um, being dead next to her her person.
0: I know, and and it, it and you, like you said, it was gruesome detail, and it's there was something you know, some very flowery language, not flowery, but very descriptive language of, um, like her glassy eyes were staring into nothingness or something like that. And so they wanted to capture the brutality of this for the people who were reading this story. Um, and I think it shocked people. I mean, when you say that's the case.
1: Yes. So I think this is one of the things um It was extremely graphically portrayed. And this is an era of a little more yellow journalism and some really big cases where um, the depravity of humanity was on display in the 1920s. So there's this case of Leopold and Loeb, who are these two rich white college kids who decide to kill somebody just to see if they could get away with it. And they don't manage to, Um, but it's this huge story in the papers. And there's a lot of attention paid to this kind of crime. But so the descriptions, I'm not sure would make it into the paper today. It seems like they probably wouldn't, but they might make it into the tabloids. Yeah, I would say that we
0: wouldn't put this much description. It's it's very graphic.
1: Yeah, but I think that the part of it was it was incredibly shocking.
0: Yeah. yeah, it's 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 something that you know. These are also really long stories. I mean, they were following these things, you know, to the minute. They were they were going after every event. They were going to the funeral. I mean, Leon George's funeral was attended by thousands of people, supposedly. Yes. Um, and then there were impassioned speeches given in the days after. I mean, even one kind of placed the blame on everyone.
1: Yes. So there's a minister in town who gives a speech the Sunday uh, and from the pulpit the Sunday after uh, Leon George's funeral. And he essentially says, if you have had a drink, if you have bought illegal alcohol, you are to blame for Leon George and Samuel Lilly's
0: death that's kind of a broad strokes claim but okay yeah
1: but i mean so he's making this argument about if you break the law in any instant then you're you're in opening the door for this kind of behavior so you need to take uh, the moral responsibility for the death of these people
0: wow that's a strong stance to take it um, is now, what happened to William and uh, Elmer Stewart, who were the father and son? They were executed together, which is pretty rare,
1: yes, yeah. yeah. So I think it's a fascinating story because I originally, nobody was sure who had committed the crime. Um, one of the early accounts blamed. Um, an unknown African American man, but they pretty quickly came to figure out it was this this Stewart father and son pair,
0: and then two other men yes. who were also arrested.
1: Yes, and I can't quite figure out what happened to yeah. well, one of them was related to a law enforcement officer, oh. and they seemed to disappear okay. off the thing pretty off the case pretty early, and I I couldn't figure out what happened to the other yeah. person.
0: Newspaper reports definitely followed the more salacious yes. you know, father son so duo. So I
1: yeah, I do think that that kind of um, just like the Leopold and Loeb case of these of these two um, well-to-do white guys, um, the the thing that it sort of hit people that this was like you know depravity being passed on through the generations, mm-hmm. so that you have this father and son working together and committing this heinous crime, and they they are tried in Southport. The trial seems to take, to modern standards, almost no time. And then they're quickly sent to Raleigh and pretty quickly executed through the electric chair.
0: On the same day?
1: Yep. And they were the 77th and 78th people to be uh, electrocuted by the state of North Carolina, which was a newfangled, supposedly more humane way to to put somebody to death.
0: Um, and they're buried together in Bellevue Cemetery in Wilmington. You can go see their, their grave now. Um, ironically, I think it says at the bottom, uh, at rest, which seems you know to kind of downplay the violent nature of kind of the last yeah. chapter of their story.
1: I mean, they both confessed to the crime. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, they were trying for clemency through the governor. And because the younger, the the son confessed, he didn't get it. Um, there was some sense that uh, he, by confessing, he took responsibility. So then you can't give somebody clemency, yeah. which I think is really mind boggling and interesting to s- sort of think on a little yeah. bit. But, yeah, it was in the papers all over the place. And it was a story that kept going until until they were executed.
0: Yeah, I mean, the entire region was looking at the story. I mean, it was in the newspaper every day. Yep. I and mean, you can tell when something really catches Especially in that time when you look at old newspapers because they have a prominent place in the front page, which a lot of times was national news, not like it is today, which, you know, we fill it with mostly local news. Uh-huh. Um, at that time there was a lot of even more salacious stories that were happening in other cities. Mm-hmm. So if you could get that like top billing, you knew it was a, a big deal. Yep. So to wrap this up, I wanna I wanna talk a little bit about what prohibition meant moving forward. A lot of things happened. A lot of laws were passed during Prohibition to kind of make it more palatable, to make it more effective. But what what did Prohibition do in the long term for the state that we might even see to this day?
1: So I think there are a couple of things that it's worth uh, acknowledging about how the history unfolded. And the first is, is that when national Prohibition was re- repealed, that had no effect on the state of North Carolina because the pre-existing statewide laws remained in effect. So the state had to go back and repeal laws in order to create um, a state where you could still drink. Um, And in fact, the state didn't support the repeal of the amendment. So they kind of incrementally begin to allow um alcohol back into the into the legal system. So in 1935 you can start do it having an ABC store, but for nearly 70 years North Carolinians couldn't buy a ready-made cocktail at a bar restaurant or hotel. Um so, you know, all through the 60s and basically, it was 1978, and Charlotte was the first place that you could go somewhere and say, I would like a gin and tonic, and actually be served a gin and tonic. Before that, you could bring a bottle of gin, you could pay for a setup mm-hmm. and pour your own gin in it. Wow. Um, but there's, so there's this, these weird things. And I mean, up until fairly recently, we couldn't buy... Uh, a cocktail at brunch. You couldn't buy alcohol at the grocery store on Sunday mornings. Mm-hmm. I mean, Sunday brunch. Yeah. And um, I think we all have seen in Wilmington and around the state, the growth of the craft beer industry.
0: Absolutely.
1: And that has a lot to do with, um, we basically didn't have beer because you could only brew beer or craft beer because you could only brew beer of a certain um
0: alcohol percentage. Yes, that's yeah. the right word.
1: Certain <laughs> alcohol percentage and that only changed in 2005 where they raised it and said you could brew beer that was stronger than 6.5% and that's in part why we now see so many more breweries. I think it also leaves the legacy of um ordinary people uh, having per- maybe being more willing to break a law than they would have been if this law hadn't been put in place.
0: Absolutely. You know, you read accounts where people make the case that, you know, temperance movements and, you know, the anti-saloon league and all these things, they did more harm than good because they really introduced the average citizen into what it was like to break the law, which is interesting.
1: Yeah. Well, and, you know, we know that people have been ingesting things that change their way that their minds work um, for centuries. This is thousands of years. You see it in Native American culture with black drink, which is a hallucinogen. You see with peyote. I mean, all of those things. This is not something that it seems like altering your state is something that humans have been doing since they figured out that they could. Mm -hmm. And so legislating against that seems to have been doomed to failure yeah. in with hindsight yeah. i mean i think that the folks who passed prohibition laws genuinely thought that it was a good thing to do and obviously we still re- regulate alcohol you have to be over 21 um you you're not supposed to drink and drive i mean we're all we have all of these laws that surround how we consume alcohol and for most people many of them seem really really reasonable, but the outright ban just seems to have, you know, failed miserably.
0: It did, um, and and led to some really fascinating and, and in some cases tragic, you know, consequences with, yep. with the story of, of uh, George and, and Lily. Um, when you look around Wilmington today, you see, you know, we have such a vibrant kind of industry with breweries and with with bars and restaurants and stuff like that. So it seems uh, difficult to think about this area banning all of that you know Mm -hmm. it's such a vital part of our economy here in the area and so uh prohibition it's uh it's a fascinating time but it's also one of those times where um it's just kind of hard to wrap your head around now in 2019 yep so jan thank you so much for coming back and talk to me about prohibition i'm glad we did this i've been thinking about it since our topsy episode uh so uh i'm glad we got to talk about it i think it's one of my favorites so um i hope everybody else likes it and uh we'll have you back as soon as we do another episode That brings us to the end of this season of Cape Fear Unearthed and our episode on Prohibition in the region. Thank you so much for joining me. Although we're closing the book on season three of the show, we're far from done sharing the Cape Fear stories. In October, we're going to be debuting a month-long series of mini-episodes telling haunted tales of the region. One story each Thursday in October all leading to Halloween. But until we unfurl our next chapters, be sure to share your thoughts on the show on Twitter with the hashtag CF Unearthed. Or you can email me directly at capefearunearthed at gmail.com. Also, please make sure that you're a member of our Facebook group where listeners can ask questions about our episodes and share their own memories of the region's history. In that group, I post extra content for each episode, and this week, I'm posting a few pictures and news articles from the age of Prohibition in Wilmington. And if you're a member of that group, you'll be the first to hear about what's coming next for Kate Fear Unearthed. And don't forget to sign up for our newsletter that goes out every Thursday. In it, I will include links to the new episodes and any supplemental pictures or videos that I uncover in my research all delivered right to your inbox. You can sign up for that newsletter at starnewsonline.com newsletters. As always, you can get a list of all the books, articles, and resources used in researching this podcast in the show notes of each episode. "Kate Fear on Earth was written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. You can find more of my work at starnewsonline.com or on Twitter at Hunter underscore Wesley. Additional editing on all of our episodes is done by Adam Fish. And a special thanks to Heather Yenko with the Cape Fear Museum and Travis Souther and Joseph Shepard with the New Hanover County Library, who have all been instrumental in gathering resources and photos for this season. This podcast is made possible by listeners and readers like you. Support local journalism and Cape Fear Unearthed by subscribing to the Star News today at starnewsonline.com slash subscribe. And while you're subscribing to things, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get the show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a review, which will help more people find Cape Fear Unearthed. Until next time... Get out and explore the Cape Fear region on your own. What you learn might just surprise you.